This episode is dedicated to Jason Perez for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. This job and low bit. It's Southpaw Deep Space Nine. This is the show where I, Angel Marti, a shepherd budding Star Trek fan, Southpaw Sam, through uh, the Star Trek universe by doing a watch through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the most communist Star Trek show, and doing a discussion episode by episode of all of the different political and cultural messages, both uh overt and covert i really enjoy listening to your intros now it's like over the reps over the episodes it's like really getting fine-tuned and now like the catchphrase like overt covert i like that building building those intro muscles you know every (laughs) you gotta you gotta work out the smaller muscles not just the large show muscles i'll be honest with you i feel like i'm good at interviews but my intros like that's a weakness for me Sam, that's what they call mutual aid from each according to their to their ability to each according to their need. Sam, speaking of muscle, we do have some extra support on this episode. We have a guest. Yes, yes. We have on today's episode a uh, frequent podcaster, frequent Star Trek fan and frequent Star Trek podcast guest who I will let uh, introduce himself. Scott Thorough on the podcast. Hi, Scott. Hi, I'm so excited to be on the show. I have been a lifelong trekker and I am, yeah, so I'm from Brooklyn, but I'm based in Baltimore. I'm a musician, podcaster. My main podcast is Zebras in America. I also am a social worker and I've I've appeared on the Deep Space Dive podcast, but when I I've watched Deep Space Nine, my favorite Star Trek show, three times in full. And as I watched <laughs> it for my third time over the beginning of the pandemic with one of my friends, and by this time, my politics had been quite radicalized to the left, and I watched it during that context, it really changed the way I viewed all of this, the Star Trek universe and the greater Deep Space Nine universe. And I agree with you, this is the most leftist Star Trek, even though it, all of Star Trek theoretically exists in a post-scarcity world, this really allows to unpack and view so beautifully in my leftist journey as I get older and older and see social inequity in the social work work I do and enjoying entertainment. Oh, yeah. No, th- as as I've said in earlier episodes of this podcast, there's definitely parts of the Star Trek universe that are definitely more unafraid to like directly confront political and social themes and some that are more like high concept science fiction, like look at the tech we've made. Uh, so, and, and I think this episode uh, is definitely one of, one of those, the ones that are, that are more uh, unapologetically political. We are discussing episode 
let's see. This is episode 10, guys. This is our 10th episode of this podcast. This has lasted uh, a little longer than some of my other creative projects. <laughs> it's lasted longer than most other podcasts. True. Yeah. Scott, because you've watched this series so many times and have discussed Star Trek and DS9 so many times, have you ever broken down this episode before? No, no uh, I've broken down the development of the Ferengi and the Ferenginar culture that is really developed in Deep Space Nine and trying to dispel really easy um, sort of stereotypes that are that are unfortunately put onto the Ferengi. So I've I've expounded on Ferengi and Ferenginar and the rules of acquisition, which w- was also turned into a book, which is their capitalist Bible, but never this particular episode. But when we were talking about unpacking these the the first season, I thought it would be fun to look at this one. So not the particular episode. For some general uh, information about this episode, uh, for people who aren't familiar, this is like one of the first episodes of the show where we really start delving into deeper Ferengi lore. And the teleplay for this episode was written by Ira Stephen Bear, who I've before credited with uh, a lot of the best parts of Deep Space Nine. Oh yeah, the guy who like just always wanted to make good TV in spite of Rick Berman. And uh, he especially uh, innovated the concept of the rules of acquisition. He uh, is responsible for a lot of the development of the Ferengi over the course of the show. It is also worth noting that he is Jewish. And I bring that up because as you alluded to, Scott, uh, it's kind of hack at this point to note that the Ferengi often uh, resemble a lot of uh, anti-Semitic tropes that they're, you know, money grubbing and, you know, have have all these little like sort of goblin-y uh, uh, aesthetics to them. However, it is worth noting that uh, Rick Berman, Jewish, Iris Stephen Bear, Jewish, and a lot of the principal Ferengi actors, including Armin Shimmerman, uh, Max Gredenchik, Aaron Eisenberg, and even Wallace Shawn, who plays the Nagus. We'll get to him in a bit. Uh, all Jewish. So I'm not, it's not. As am I. Well, <laughs> all right, great. So we have, do we have your approval to proceed on this episode then, Scott? As a, as a Jewish uh, socialist from Brooklyn, I am totally down. And yeah, it's just easy to be like, oh, it's anti-Semitic tropes, but it's not. And, and if you don't mind me going on a little bit of a tangent, you know, people can make entertainment that represents their people that doesn't honor them. But I don't think the Ferengi represent the people. I remember when I saw the film Borat in theaters, the first one, and I saw the way that people were laughing at the stereotypes of the Jews. And it made me feel very uncomfortable where, right. Where it was one of the most uncomfortable movie theater experiences of my life. And the second one was just, you know, capitalist neoliberal propaganda. But so, so I know the difference. I know when I feel that they're taking advantage of tropes, which I don't feel in the Ferengi. I will get into later what the Ferengi represent for me, but it's it's more cultural ideals than it is uh, people. So the rules of acquisition in this beginning part of this episode reminds me a lot of the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery, it means what the U.S. takes is theirs. Once you have their property, you never give it back. This was even cited by RBG against the Oneida Nation. 
Thanks, RBG. But this applies not only to indigenous medicine and traditional knowledge. Now, it also includes plant DNA, but also DNA of indigenous people. If you want to look up more on this topic, look up genomic justice and bioethics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even when Deep Space Nine came out, Iris Stephen Bear wrote a version of the rules of acquisition that you could buy at bookstores that was, he ghost wrote it for Quark. It was pretend that it was Quark presenting <laughs> the, the rules of acquisition. And I actually, I actually downloaded it to just do my, do some research because whenever I'm on a podcast, I like to do some research and, and Star Trek is, is the show, is the franchise that's most deep, dearest to my heart. It's how me and my father, rest in peace, we would connect with each other. And Deep Space Nine, to me, is my favorite show of all time, not just my favorite Star Trek, because of the character development and how you can watch it with new lenses and take from it. As we get into this episode, we open with some lovely uh, Cisco, Jake, uh, father-son time. Uh, One of the things I noticed was that uh, Cisco is distinctly not disciplinarian or controlling with Jake, despite he, I mean, he's very clearly dismayed about Nog, uh, about Jake spending more time with Nog, but he asks, you know, Jake, if he wants to uh, go with him to visit some hot springs on Bajor. And then when Jake is very obviously disinterested, uh, Cisco's response is to just say like, well, you don't have to go if you don't want to. And and I think because of this, because of Cisco very much like not trying to be controlling, at the end of that scene when uh, he Cisco uh, says that like you know you'd rather spend t- more time with Nog than with your old man, and Jake says Nog's my friend. I think we feel Cisco's pain there pretty hard. But uh, what I like about grounding the episode in this relationship is then we immediately switch to. Uh, the very unwholesome, very controlling, very dominant relationship between Quark and his brother Rom, which I think this is the first episode where we really see Rom in any extended fashion. Like we see um, some references to, uh, I think there there were some like light references to Rom in some previous episodes, but this is like the first time we really see the character like with his own sort of plot. And we see that Quark, uh, or Quark, like, uh, chastises Rom, and then Rom, uh, who's Nog's father, then chastises him. There's sort of a, an immediate, uh, manifestation of that cycle of interpersonal trauma going. Would you say it's fair to say this episode is a rom-com? I regret, uh, agreeing to do this. I have to go. <laughs> See you later. No, no, strap in. The doors are locked. Okay. I feel I feel like this is my fault because I do so many puns that you started it. Sam got the disease from me. <laughs> but so the uh, interpersonal trauma is broken up uh, by the arrival on Deep Space Nine of the Grand Nagus Zek, the uh, basically like the highest sovereign of the Ferengi. Uh, and I have to say. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know this about the actor, there's some delicious, delicious irony of the fact that Grand Nagasek is played by Wallace Shawn, the avowed socialist, like, like the one who wrote an essay about why he is a socialist. 
So I can only imagine there's that, that there's there's some uh, R slash they knew things going on here. Like this was this was a calculated choice, I think. And then we get the main credits, but the whole cold open sequence seems to be specifically to compare and contrast authority and dominance in interpersonal relationships. Like Cisco doesn't demand obedience, but feels loss. And then we see that uh, with how, how it manifests in Quark and Rom's relationship. And then also, also the, when the Nagus arrives, there's this immediate assumption that uh, he's there to take the bar away from them, that the desire for control uh, is motivated by a fear of loss. Yeah, there, and also like paranoia and the culture breeds this sort of feeling, the, the, the Ferenginar culture. And up until this point in, in Star Trek The Next Generation, the Ferengi were written as to be more, they, they were written in a different way. Right. That's all I'm going to say. They were, they were, they hissed like cats. They were, yeah. <laughs> they were always, they were always hunched over like goblins. Also then is Quark kind of the first, like really fully developed three-dimensional, like humanized Ferengi in the Trek universe? Yes. So, uh, O'Brien is back. O'Brien's back on the station after being away for a while. Uh, and he's pitching in with helping teach at the school. I thought that was that was also cool to cut from um, this very uh, hierarchical and very uh, sort of one can read a socially conservative uh, relationship between uh, all of Quark's family and the Nagus. And then we go to uh, Miles O'Brien pitching in as a substitute teacher uh, where it's a man doing uh, doing his part with typically feminized labor, even though he's kind of struggling a little bit. We see that he's uh, sub- he's substitute teaching the uh, uh, the school, and part of this is also to show uh, why Cisco is so concerned about Jake hanging out with Nog, because we see that Nog and Jake are kind of distracting each other in class, and also that Nog uh, did not do his homework. He didn't do an essay uh, that was about ethics, which I have to say is a little bit of ham-handed. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's fair to point out sometimes that the writers of Star Trek do get a little bit too on the nose here, but it's hard to it's hard not to do that when like every alien on the show either has a huge forehead or huge nose. <laughs> but then I also had to note here that O'Brien, all he does is just give Nog an extension. He's already like less disciplinarian than almost every grade school teacher <laughs> I ever had. Did anybody else like pick up on that? I mean, he read to me like classic uh, substitute teacher. It's like, I'm only here temporarily. So let me kick this can down the road. That was my vibe. Yeah. I- I'm not even supposed to be here today. And <laughs> <laughs> and also like the way he's been written so far, I can't read him as like a strict disciplinarian because we've got to go back to like the Free Willy episode with Tosk. Like he's not like that. Yes. Which for fans and listeners, you have to check out the fan-made trailer somebody made where Angel requested that somebody do a Free Willy mashup and somebody actually obliged them. So you can find it on our YouTube. And on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Pod. I'm a member. Yeah. But with the school scene, I did want to critically analyze Keiko appearing once and then the rest of the time they just talk about her. And this isn't even about the writers per se. I'm actually using this to frame today. 
because with so much anti-Asian murder and harassment of women happening right now, the act of rendering Asian women invisible reads especially different. I'd like to say we've come a long way since 93, but we haven't. I don't mean the writers of the show. I mean, we as a Western society in the U.S., it's never a good time to talk about anti-Asian racism because the West has had beef with China since they knew it existed. So it's politically inconvenient to humanize Asians. I don't mean, again, about the show. This is more of like a way to jump off to current events. And I think that's a great thing about Star Trek is it takes place in the future. So it's nothing specific about today. So then it really is then everything about today because you can use it to analyze today. What also stands out to me in this school scene is essentializing by alien race. Right. Nog could have easily said there were some people there that took his homework when he was being asked by O'Brien what happened to his homework. But instead, he mentioned the Vulcans, right? Yeah. Like he specifically mentioned who it was when he could have just said it was people, right? So for the fans, this is supposed to read as Ferengi's liars and Vulcans honorable. Exactly. But this type of essentializing is still very real. So it's not like saying the writers fucked up. It's like, no, people do this. People did this back then. People do this today. So a way I'm reading not just DS9, but Star Trek in general is like, it has this human supremacy. Star Trek has this human supremacy. (laughs) Yeah. As analog to white supremacy of real life. I don't even think that they're intentionally doing it. It just will appear. It replicates itself in artwork, right? But also like, Why assume white supremacy ends just because there's discovery of alien life forms or there was some kind of world war that brought people together, right? I'm not just talking about Star Trek in general, but it also just made me think about in general, like with sci-fi, that there is no more racism, there is no more white supremacy. It's like, why not play around with that idea? You know, a future where that still exists, right? And they do to a certain extent when in these quadrants, when they're dealing with, you know, cultures that are not working with Starfleet that have different viewpoints where, you know, you have Babylon 5, which is a capitalist capitalist dystopia, and Deep Space Nine, which is, you know, post-scarcity, depending on most of the series, is a, a communist utopia. But the Ferengis sort of exist in in an almost you know, capitalist realism, except under a capitalist theocracy. Right. So they're almost anachronistic. Right. Now, I think, didn't, didn't like Iris Stephen Barry even say in an, it, it, it's like in an interview, I think uh, specifically in response to the allegations that they're, um, uh, that, the, that the Ferengi are anti-Semitic stereotypes, it's like, no, they're Americans. They're like 20th century Americans. That's the whole point of them. Which, which sort of gets dealt with later in, in a, in another episode. So yeah, they are symbols of, of late stage capitalism. You know, when, when the, when the grand Nagus says that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, that was hard. It was actually Slavoj Zizek that said that, but you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's an episode of the next generation too, that I've inserted in one of the previous episodes where data is introducing the Ferengis, and he says they are Yankee traders of 18th and 19th century America, sir. Yeah, basically. 
you know, it's interesting you bring up the point of essential of, of like essentializing by race because I feel like one of the one of the whole subtexts of the of like the whole relationship between Jake and Nog is like the whole like oh it's bad to essentialize by race that you shouldn't uh, mistrust um, that you shouldn't mistrust Ferengi just because they're Ferengi. So there is this interesting dialectic going on here where it's like the show is itself commenting on essentialism, but also falling victim to its own essentialist traditions. And assimilation versus pluralism where Nog and Jake are friends trying to find a comfortable plurality of their cultures in the schools and trying to understand each other and having them written complexly, especially for the time. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. I think Deep Space Nine, especially when it's really good, it's like really good because there's such a clear thematic coherence to a lot of, to like the entire episode. And so there's the next few scenes really construct this uh, contrast of like trust versus paranoia, as you were saying, like, because we have Quark uh, reacting to the Nagus being on Deep Space Nine with this immediate assumption that, you know, he's, that he's going to buy the bar from Quark. And, and obviously because he understands the nature of making profit that he's going to like get ripped off in the deal and he can't refuse because it's the Nagus. But then we go to Cisco talking to O'Brien about, about the struggle of dealing with children. Uh, and there's this, there's this like discussion between O'Brien where, uh, that ends with, I appreciate the advice, Chief, but I trust my son. And it was also very important for Avery Brooks that the relationship between father and son was loving and trusting and different from how certain, you know, uh, single fathers were portrayed in media. Yeah, absolutely. Credit should be given because, I mean, like Avery Brooks, like, I mean, since Star Trek, I guess, like, he's kind of been he's i guess he has like this relate uh, this reputation for being like hard to work with or whatever or something yeah that's coded language though yeah exactly no no i was doing finger quotes but this is audio so you couldn't see me doing it (laughs) um but uh but uh, absolutely avery books deserves so much credit for all the things that are like so great and different about the depiction between uh uh, uh, the, the depiction of cisco and his son and then again, it cuts from Cisco saying, I trust my son, to then a dinner scene where the Nagus insists on having the food that Quark serves him taste test. <laughs> so with this scene, on top of attire, the use of chopsticks keeps adding to the Silk Road parallels with the Federation acting as the West. So like all these little details, they don't really like spotlight it or make a big deal of it, but the details add so much to the show, especially with what seems like a limited budget. But going back to the scene, if you ever read Edward Said's Orientalism. Incredible book, yeah. It talks about Orientalism being the standard Western view, right? So they won't be aware they're being Orientalist unless someone points it out and corrects them. But even then, you'll face resistance. But in the Orientalist view, the West is the parent, 
and the East is the uncivilized child in need of the West's rugged paternalism. This isn't even intentional in Western Orientalist fiction or in the minds of writers of TV shows. It's just an unquestioned default. So the parallel I'm drawing here is the Ferengi, instead of anti-Semitic here, it's not explicit, but much more they're Orientalized, right? They're seen as chaotic and uncivilized, and the Federation very much acts like the West. So whether it's intentional or somewhat intentional, but maybe a lot of it is unconscious, there is this Orientalist framework happening here. Yeah, no, they're, like the fact that like Ferengi like food is always like meant it's like a common Ferengi delicacy is tube grubs and <laughs> uh, and like it's always like bugs and slithery things. It definitely, you know, makes me think of like bizarre foods with Andrew Zimmern where it's like, look at these people in these Asian countries eating bugs. Isn't this gross? Yeah. Being an Asian person who moved here in the 80s. That was much more of a classic trope, I think, in older TV shows and movies where you always showed Asians like eating stuff like that. So that was like a question that you would get. Do you guys eat bugs and lizards and stuff like that? Yeah. Monkey brains. Yeah. So it all it all fits here. As we see as we see this uh, this dinner unfold between the Nagus and Quark and Rom, we kind of see that in Ferengi culture, trustworthiness is seen as a specific flaw. Like the Nagus over the course of the episode kind of, uh, you know, repeatedly will. Uh, commend Quark or other people when they seem to exhibit uh, uh, specific instances of guile or deceptiveness. So the Nagus is there with his son Crax and his servant uh, Mehardu, uh, and it turns out that uh, he's there not to buy the bar, but to use uh, the bar for a meeting of various Ferengi business leaders to discuss what to do in the uh in the gamma quadrant so it during during the course of these dealings it turns out that that uh as opposed to cisco uh the nagus very much does not uh trust his son and uh is constantly criticizing him and uh is basically uh does not trust him as the uh potential successor to his position during the dinner between the Nagus and Quark and Rom, it turns out it, it becomes out that uh, Rom's son Nog is going to a human school where uh, the teacher is female, which uh, cultural relativist moment. While you and I and everybody listening might think of a female teacher as sort of like a uh, very uh, conservative stereotype, like here, it's like just for a female to be out of the house at all. Even that is radical. <laughs> The Nagus, <laughs> the Nagus has a line about these Federation do-gooders always sticking their ugly noses in other people's business. Um, to me, that kind of sounds a little bit like it's some subconscious uh, rhetoric that like reinforces the idea of like, yeah, the Federation bring freedom and democracy just like the U.S. does. Of course, they're of course the evil Nagus is going to be against it. Yes. So then we cut uh we we cut back to Cisco and the crew and uh there's a scene on when after the the after it gets decided that this meeting of Ferengi business leaders is going to happen on Deep Space 9 there's a moment where Kira uh shows some uh dis- distaste towards Ferengi in general but then Cisco checks her uh you know which which again is a contrast to uh, Cisco in a couple, some other earlier episodes where he also seems in general distrustful of Ferengi, but then also 
uh, this in some later episodes, this will this will be further criticized. But uh, again, I just think this episode seems to be where like it, it, the writers and especially Iris Stephen Bear uh, uh, just have this very uh, firm grasp on how Cisco is like the touchstone of like who is the emotionally healthy center that everybody is contrasted <laughs> against. Where whereas before it was a little bit more scattershot and. And sometimes, like, people would check Cisco and the other way around. So Cisco checks Kira's racism, but then O'Brien uh, uh, is really recommending that Cisco uh, separate uh, Jake from Nog and get, no- get him to spend less time from Nog. But then uh, what happens is that Nog friend dumps Jake. So Cisco doesn't even have to get involved. But Cisco doesn't get involved, but there's definitely some. Par- the, the reason why that happens is because of the parental influence from from Nog's side. So even though even though our hero wants to uh, not uh, interfere in the life of his son, uh, we definitely see from the you know what we're clearly shown like the Goofus and Gallant here. That's like Gallant is is uh, Cisco and Goofus is like all of the Ferengi culture. <laughs> so during this meeting with, uh, with uh, all of these different Ferengi uh, business leaders, Zach, the Nagus, like basically spells out to people that, okay, we now have enough of a reputation in the Alpha Quadrant uh, because like we continually expo- like make these exploitative business deals, which is like the goal of what we do to ex- to get as much profit as possible. So the only now that we have enough of this, the only way to keep building our business is to find new people to dupe, new marks, basically. Uh, so that's what the Gamma Quadrant affords us. That now there are people who don't know who we are, so they won't uh, they won't know that our whole nature is is to exploit people for profit and to deceive people for profit, and even goes as far as specifically to use the word trust here. And I think this scene is one is like is a wonderful illustration of the relate of why capitalism necessitates imperialism. The Ferengi are like mirror antagonists of, you know, being a foil to the utopia of Starfleet in this futuristic patriarchal rule there, you know, uh, in Fisher and capitalist realism looks at, looks at capitalism as a desire machine. And for the Ferengi, that is both figuratively and literally true. They, they get, they get some sort of sexual, physical, visceral feeling from the art of the deal. Yes, I noticed it in when we did Culus. I, I did point out that in one that in one scene where Cork is negotiating with uh, Vash, I almost said Vash, but <laughs> that, no comment. Um, uh, Cork is negotiating with Vash, like he seems to get like physically turned on from how how roughly she negotiates the deal. Yeah, and like I think that they would very much relate to forty five of this sort of brash. Um, get the deal done, show your power, make people feel strong. Later in the later in the show, you're gonna learn just how chauvinistic the culture of Ferengi is and and how shallow it is. And if there is a way out of it, is there another option? 
what I noticed was with the scene where they were fighting about Nog going to school, Ferengi very much reminded me of like classic American libertarians who homeschool because school teaches ethics. (laughs) Or perhaps that's my reading because, you know, maybe this could also be attachment parenting and tropes of backwards, greedy oriental merchants, right? So that's another way that you could read this. But what's interesting is even though the Ferengi are all individualists, they still have a merchant's guild because that makes sense. Ferengi are also quite collective because they constantly think about themselves and talk about themselves as a collective, which also reminds me of the contradictions of libertarians and objectivists who are also staunch individualists, but also think of themselves as a group. Ayn Rand even called her group the collective. The contradictions. So uh, we, at the end, as, as these uh, business discussions uh, uh, proceed, the Nagus announces that as the Ferengi sort of economic uh, empire expands, there's going to be uh, a new successor as Nagus who will take over and oversee these business interests. Uh, and we think that it would be Crax, obviously, like naturally being named as successor, but instead... Zek names Quark as his successor. And knowing that, as we discussed, you know, the, the nature of power, uh, power being sort of like its own path to destruction when Zek uh, names Quark as, uh, as uh, his successor, Quark immediately has this oh shit look on his face <laughs> because he realizes that like a target has been put on his back that all of the other Ferengi in the room are now aiming at. Yeah, he's just not thrilled He's because he's because he could just think about how much he's going to get pilfered and taken advantage of. And he doesn't want this. He doesn't want this yet. He was pretty happy deep in the cut having a really, it's very convenient where his bar is right now for trade agreements. And now he has to deal with all this other stuff. And he knows he knows what he knows. He foresees what is going to happen or could happen. Seeing so many Ferengi actors in one episode, even in one scene, it made me think about the thing I like about most of the aliens in uh, DS9 and Star Trek in general, because they could be played by actors of any race or gender, though I'm sure the aliens are played mostly by white male actors. And you'll notice a lot of the aliens not in prosthetics are white actors, right? When you actually see their skin, it is not makeup. It's an actual white person. So their skin is white. So though there is supposed to be no white supremacy in the future, the defaulting to whiteness is very much still an unconscious bias of people who make even utopian shows. So that was something a little bit meta that I was noticing about this episode and just about space shows and Star Trek shows and sci-fi shows in general. And the concepts become more overt later. One bit of Star Trek fiction that I think most boldly sort of confronted that's that like assume that that sort of analog of human supremacy for uh, white supremacy was Star Trek VI: The Undiscovered Country. In, in that movie, where uh, as it bore the daughter of the Klingon Chancellor specifically uh, uh, calls out the Federation for being a uh, Homo Sapiens only club. Mm. So, and that was in 1991, so not too long before this, but I think definitely uh, 
I will say like the undiscovered country walked so that Deep Space Nine could run. Another bit of wholesome wholesomeness is that after after uh, Nog a friend dumps Jake uh, the next day at <laughs> breakfast, uh, uh, Cisco asks asks Jake what's wrong, and and Jake immediately opens up to him about what's bothering him. There's no there's no like uh, uh, it's it's fine, Dad. Like nothing's going on. It's like he he tells him. I just I, I just always want to wrap myself in all of these scenes like a blanket. Um, but that, so, so Jake, so even though, even though Cisco, uh, uh, didn't like try to exert his authority, he now like knows that the, uh, the consequence is that like Jake not being happy and Jake being deprived of his friendship is, uh, a worse uh, outcome than whatever kind of perceived safety, uh, whatever perceived safety uh, he might've gotten for Jake, uh, by separating from Nog in the first place. Big twist though. Uh, comes up as while Quark is trying to uh, get advice from Zek on how to uh, run the galaxy as Nagus, he fucking dies. You know <laughs> what a what a classic capitalist move to just uh, you know leave your bo- leave your job without any uh, proper standards of proce- standard operating procedure documents for your successor. Just fucking up and up and leaving although it is noted that zek dies before he can even go on fucking vacation he was in the middle of planning vacations and he dies that's what you get when you climb to the top of capitalist successes <laughs> that you don't even get to enjoy your retirement you're just already dead but uh but then we see that when a ferengi of zek's status dies or any ferengi of like high status your remains are cremated and then auctioned off in little souvenir <laughs> petri dishes. Like you get turned into pogs, basically. Which, Sam, I wanted to pick your brain about this. This kind of feels like a little bit of an alchemical transformation of social capital into monetary capital. Yeah. Zek got turned into shares of an equity product. This actually happens to trusts of dead people or even classic artwork. Like you can buy shares of classic artwork. There's ads for buying shares of a Basquiat. Not even NFTs. This is how it's been going for a while. So before you accuse NFTs of being weird, traditional capitalism was doing it first, or as Karl Marx described it, as fictitious capital, because he already was noticing that since property is now just a concept where it can be people and ideas, and I don't even mean people as an enslavement. Like you can make yourself into a company, which is just a property, and then you can share parts of you as the company. Yeah, you can sell shares of you, right, as a company. Therefore, any property can be broken up into shares and anything can become a property. Talk about equivalent exchange, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I love how that's both like an economics reference and an anime reference. (laughs) Yes, it is. Well, I've gone on long rants on Twitter about how Full Metal Alchemist is all about socialism. It's totally about socialism. And the next rewatch I'm going to do, because again, as I've gotten more like my my hypothesis testing that we cannot have a world without patriarchy, uh, sexism, racism, white supremacy, without getting rid of capitalism, the more I, I... have to rewatch these texts with the context that I have. And also 
Y'all ever heard of Big Nose George Parrot? No. Who's that? So he was one of the, he was a cow, cowboy uh, outlaw and he was, he was considered such an evil man that when they killed him, they turned him into boots. <laughs> yeah. So, so some of these things that, that draw on other things like the Ferengi using bits and pieces, NFTs are like baseball cards that have little pieces of jerseys as part of your fetish coins has historical background. There was a time where you, where they would make clothes out of ornery people. Well, there's uh, newspaper articles and stuff that even came out recently about how people go to the house of like their grandfather or dead grandparent or aunt, and they find things made from dead Filipino people or Japanese people because a lot of soldiers used to turn their victims into some kind of ornament or some kind of souvenir. And then that used to get auctioned and traded and sold too. So there's a long legacy of that war trophies, like humans as war trophies and something you could auction and sell. So that's part of it too. Well, I guess we can say that old Ferengi don't die. They just get liquidated. <laughs> good night. Thank you and good night. Scott, there's more of this coming. I know what I, I, know what I signed up for. So then uh, as, as Quark tries to fend for himself as the new Nagus, we see uh, something that we're all familiar with whenever there's a, 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 another sovereign government in turmoil is there's a drone strike. <laughs> They're literally like some, some, there's some robot drone that is used as an assassination attempt on Quark. More parallels to the Orient. The U.S. always wars with and drones and bombs the Orient. And for those who don't know where the Orient begins, it starts west of Europe and really anything non-Occidental can be the Orient, like parts of Africa is part of the Orient. So you look at the historic places the U.S. has gone to war with, their enemies, how often is it in the Orient? Like I said, there's always been a certain hatred of the Orient. There's been coups and overthrows in Latin America and Africa, but as far as openly declaring war... The West has always wanted to destroy and conquer the East. This is so ingrained, it even reflects in how Western leftists think about the East and it's such a default. It's something they would never critically examine because the person who might point out the racism about wanting to always fight with the East, they often are seen as the problem, right? Not the person who's like talking about the East. Yeah, speaking of Vouch. Yeah, <laughs> that's a powerfully supreme white default. Well, I wonder if there's a name for that where you always just default into your white centric thinking where you want to make that supreme, right? <laughs> hmm. Like you're hmm. some kind of some kind of supremacist. I'm trying to put my <laughs> finger on it. Human. <laughs> yes. Homo sapiens only club. Western enlightenment, right? They just considered only white people to be human. So it used to be synonymous as well. Right. Subconscious exceptionalism. Now the main mystery of this episode is who ordered the drone strike? <laughs> Uh, so the uh, immediately the uh, suspect is uh, Mehardu, the uh, because he was not at the funeral, uh, which I think is a fun little uh, uh, spin on the butler did it trope. <laughs> but uh, I also, but then that made me think, like, I wonder if the fact that that is a trope speaks to how 
class-based dominance always leads on an interpersonal level to resentment and potential for violent reprisal, which Marx projects to a societal level. You know, like what what was what was one of the main appeals of watching Downton Abbey? It was because like the whole show was about butlers and how they were like at any point going to probably do something to maybe poison or like, you know, uh, make make, you know, their their masters, you know, slip on a bar of soap when they got out of the tub, you know, and make them miscarry. And and just it's it just goes to show. If you love the Southpaw Project. Please support us and help us get paid for our labor, by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at Patreon.com, slash, so when Odo is commenting on uh, possible suspects of this attack, he, he then says, again, we're, we're going to some racial essentialism. Uh, Odo comments that Mayhardu's species, I forgot the name of the species, uh, is known for being very loyal servants, which for some reason that gives me British Raj vibes. Anybody else for some reason immediately think of like people talking about specific races as being good servants and think of like British colonialists specifically? Yeah, I definitely thought that as well. I thought that one was intentional. They were definitely trying to make a criticism here. Right, right, right. So as we as we see tensions start to rise, especially in in this storyline, then uh, we go to we go back to the Cisco Jake dynamic, and we see that Jake has been uh, Jake's making time to uh, sneak off somewhere uh, in the evenings. He was not home uh, in time for uh, dinner last night, uh, which uh, you know we'll learn that food is a. Uh, especially important in the Cisco household because uh, his father was a Creole sh- uh, is a, cre- uh, a Creole restaurateur in New Orleans. I did notice that like, I feel like the kind of storyline going with uh, Jake and Nog here is like the kind of storyline we usually see the kind of dynamic we usually see like treated with a romantic relationship. It's kind of like a platonic Romeo and Juliet situation. But uh, but it's about it's about friendship, which, you know, a homosocial friendship, which I think is a nice uh, change of uh, is, is refreshing compared to the majority of uh, relationships shown on TV. We then uh, we go we go to see Quark uh, in full business uh, as the new Nagus. He's holding audiences and uh, these scenes vary very nakedly reference the opening scene from the Godfather where, uh, you know, Buena Sera is talking to Vito Corleone about, uh, you know, making him kill a man that he does not know. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that it, it, it just seems to the, 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 the summary message that we're getting about how the Ferengi work, like sort of as a government is that really it's, the Nagus op- operates more like the head of a mafia family than an elected head of state. And uh, it then made me wonder about like, if there's really any functional difference in how a feudal monarchy works versus how a mob family does, you know, because there's like, there is like the head of the family and then there's like the territory that the family has. And then there's like the lower class, like soldiers and stuff. In fact, I think if, if I remember, this is just 
from one time I went on like a Wikipedia uh, hyperfixation binge about the mafia. I was like, even like lower level mafia operatives are called like soldato in in Italian, which means soldier. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn in the nineties <laughs> as the as the mafia was ending, and definitely saw some weird stuff, but. I also saw nothing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. We will not try further because this podcast is definitely anti-snitch. And to add on to what you were speaking about, Angel, I feel like right here, DS9 really makes clear the final stage of capitalism is mafias and gangsters, right? Which parallels corporate boardrooms, aka corporate raiders. And there's always been this kind of like back and forth parallel with even real life mobsters and them almost running things like a corporation. And the corporation is run like a mafia and the mafia is run like a dictatorship because gangsters are the ultimate libertarian capitalists and have been used by the US and capitalists to evict people or straight up commit massacres and genocide all in the name of anti-communism. This happened in Korea, which was prelude for Indonesia. Happened in Cuba. Yeah, Cuba, straight up gangsters in Cuba, mafia in Cuba, straight up gangsters and mafia in Korea. This was happening all throughout Latin America. And this was all prelude to Indonesia and the uh, genocide there. The gangsters who led the anti-communist death squads called themselves free men. Check out the book, The Jakarta Method, then watch The Act of Killing. But these gangsters, they see themselves as an extension of this older idea of free men. The genocide estimates range from one to two million people. Bodies clogged rivers and blood clogged the sewage system. The U.S. did that. They were part of setting all that up. Anti-communism has been historically a racialized terror program that's eradicated millions of members of the global south. And a big part of that was the use of gangsters. And so really then the ultimate anti-communist, the final stage of capitalism is gangsters and mobsters. And for them, they see themselves as these libertarians, These, as the Indonesians put it. They call themselves the truest free men. So in the movie, The Act of Killing, they make sure that people understand that the truest, freest man that can do whatever they want, that's a gangster. And that is their definition of freedom. Then to those type of free men, the worst social justice, the thing that wants to make everybody equal, give equal say, which would lessen their freedom, quote unquote, right, is communism, right? It's the thing that wants to distribute that power to everybody else. And they, as quote unquote, free men can't stand for that. I'm not saying this is what the Ferengi are, but there is this parallel of showing what the final stage of capitalism looks like, which then they made a parallel to the Godfather, which those gangsters in Indonesia were very, very much inspired by American gangster movies like the Godfather. Right. So we learned very quickly that Rom, both Rom and Cracks are the people behind this, uh, behind the bomb and the, behind the plot to uh, uh, murder Cork. Which I love. I love so far that th- that this whole show refuses to use whodunits as like a way to build tension. It's always just like who did this? Okay, yeah, this is who did it. Yeah, you almost always find out who did it unceremoniously and. In another nod to The Godfather, you have the Freddo aspect, which remind us, reminds us of the Ferengi rule of acquisition number six, never allow family to stand in the way of opportunity. 
but much more forgiving than uh, in The Godfather with Fredo. There's no, uh, you know, going to give spoilers from a 50 year old movie. There's no, uh, <laughs> there's no boat scene. But uh, I love how, again, we keep cutting back and forth between like the Cisco dynamic and the Quark and the Ferengi dynamic. And so we see like at the same time, we learn that Ramen cracks are behind the the bombing that Jake again fails to come home for dinner without telling Cisco, you know, where he's going. So it's like there's I'm not it is this interesting thing where it's like we they're almost equated in a way like those kinds of betrayals just through the pure juxtaposition. Uh, but then again, to go back to the whole, like treating this, uh, these very like familial and platonic relationships with all the same, uh, uh, dr- uh, dramatic beats that are usually given to, uh, romantic relationships. Jadzia gives like Cisco the, you gotta go out and get her speech, but about like just actively reaching out to Jake and like, you know, not, not just like withdrawing just because of his own feelings of betrayal. Um, and so because Cisco goes out to look for Jake, he learns that where he's been sneaking off to is he's been teaching Nog how to read, which I think, which like, <laughs> it feels a little like, it, it, it feels a little bit like the miracle worker. It's like water, <laughs> Helen. Uh, it feels a little paternalistic, but it is, it's, it's a, it's a sweet point that it's like, because it's like Jake, the reason why Jake is like doing this in secret is because he doesn't want like his hit nogs family to razz him about you know learning in the human way it's it's there's a there's a many layers about this whole dynamic as far as like is it empowering and sweet or does it reflect some kind of paternalistic thing so i want to throw it back to you guys and see what your takes on it are it's nice not not every deep space nine episode has the a b plot connected to each other so so i like that the a b plot is connected and shows the the beauty of friendship and education. If everything is taken care of for you on DS9, like school is free, college is free, housing is a right, right? And you can't duplicate gold press latinum, then it's all about status and ornament. Here's this arbitrary thing I have that you don't, right? Which then makes sense because Ferengi are so anachronistic. Why that type of money based on status only, right? Because everything else is taken care of for you. Why that would have value, especially for them. There's, there's usually it's dropped that like you have to program recipes into replicators. So that's what makes me think that maybe the solution in like a, if, if you are still working in a capitalist economy, like the Ferengi or like the Cardassians or whatever, in it, it, you know, even with the introduction of replicator technology. And I think, and I think that we see this with, uh, you know, the way access to technology is managed now that like, clearly the solution to be able to still monetize things is like you, uh, license, you know, the recipes and like, you have like specific programs that create certain items that you then have to like purchase the license to like download onto your replicator and use. That seems like that's how they would manage that. What do you think about that? Intellectual property <laughs> still exists. Cause it's just like it, it what I just read that, um, uh, that article now about like those artificial eyes that now like don't work that people have like have in their body. And then like, they don't work because the company that managed their software went out of business. It's like, it's like very clearly that's like 
like I, I think you you touch on something very clearly that is like the presence of the replicator technology like wouldn't in and of itself like be like the the uh, end of like scarcity economy because then it's just scarcity. Uh, what becomes the scarcity is the resources meant to uh, that control and manipulate said technology. Well, it's like what I said about white supremacy, right? There's no reason why just because you're in the future and there's alien races that white supremacy would disappear because people will try to keep replicating that to keep making it exist and perpetuate. Pun intended. All right. And the same thing with money and capitalism. Even if you create replicators, there could be other people who want to create scarcity because they like capitalism. So to your point, right? One can't assume just because you have something that could get rid of all scarcity that people won't still try to make artificial scarcity because they want to make artificial value or, as Marx put it, fictitious capital. I I very much agree with everything you're saying. (laughs) All right. Well, then shut up and keep agreeing. Um, So uh, Odo is pursuing Mehardu as the main suspect. Uh, He tries to find out where he is, but then he ends up learning that. that uh, he's with Zek, who is very much still alive. So what happens is that uh, Rom and Grax uh, try to lure Cork into an airlock, and they're going to just space him. Uh, there's a great line. <laughs> there's a great line where uh, Rom says, uh, "You've just been voted out of office," which I think is a uh, I, I think is a nice little uh, reflection of how under capitalism electoral politics uh, is kind of useless. Because it is just economic interests that determine who's head of state. <laughs> I always chuckle when when we get those sort of brotherly interactions. So, <laughs> so right before Quark is going to die of, of violent explosive decompression, uh, Zach reveals himself, uh, and uh, he says that this was all a test to see if uh, Cracks was worthy of being the true uh, successor to him as Nagus. And uh, Crax uh, pleads uh, that he was just about to seize power. But Zek says, you don't grab power, you accumulate it quietly, saying that the secret what that the, that the whole thing, the whole thing that Crax missed out on was the bar. Uh, <laughs> as as you uh, mentioned, Scott, it's like the bar is a place where is like this prime location to acquire capital, acquire a business and keep building up power and politically relevant. So you, there are so many reasons why you would want to have that bar if you were trying to develop power. This is Zek basically saying that like business shadow government is part and parcel of capitalism. Yes, that whole ending was fantastic because it ended so quickly. Even that line, you know, didn't take very long, but there was so much stuff like happening there and so much criticism and so much to deconstruct, right? Because in the end, Quark thought because of merit, he was going to become the Nagus. But then, dun, 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 really, no, there's no meritocracy, even in this corrupt way. It is nepotism, which capitalism is always going to default to that as well, right? Like the mafia, this nepotism. And then the whole line about power and accumulation, it really made me think about the primitive accumulation of capitalism in general especially in the West, right? Since you've seemingly always had it and it didn't just appear overnight, people don't ask how the West got so rich. When it happens overnight, people resist and revolt, which they did and which they do. But now that it's been there and it keeps accumulating with interest, 
asking for revolution seems overboard to many people because it's happening slowly and quietly, right? Which is the point that the Nagus is making. That's how you really do it is you do it slowly and quietly and then nobody tries to kill you over it. Nobody tries to overthrow you, right? So even the term radical, it means our level of response seems to exceed what is happening because what is happening is quiet and indirect, right? Realistically, we shouldn't be radicals for wanting socialism or a better world. We're only considered that because everything is happening so quietly, our response seems to exceed the level of aggression that people are like directly noticing. Exactly. Hell yeah. So after after Zek reassumes power and, and we cut we show uh, the the denouement between Quark and Rom is that uh, because of Rom's like ambition and willingness to uh, murder his own brother for power, uh, Quark actually rewards Rom with like a new title, making him some made-up title that actually doesn't improve his salary or anything, which again, that's his own little bit of commentary. But it seems like at the end of the episode, the, the contrast between like the Cisco family dynamic and the whole like Ferengi dynamic is that Jake and Rom are both kind of rewarded for their dishonesty because they were dishonest in ways that were done for principled reasons from their perspective, cultural outlooks. Well, it's just like they were able to make adaptations by being true to themselves, by also there by presenting and showcasing what ethics are, because also ethics is a nebulous idea as are morals because they're compared to what? That's why it's very difficult to say what is good or what is bad. Or when someone says you're a racist, you can't, it's very easy to refute. When someone says you're a racist, you just go, no, I'm not. But when you say what you did was racist, this thing was racist or this thing was that, then there's more movement to do it, which is to say that a lot of words are meaningless without constants to refer them to. And you get to see the character growth and the friendship growth in a way that just excuse TV tropes, especially during then post, you know, a few years post Cold War. These are two kids that are being thrown into uh, a Kosovo or, you know, the sort of vibe that is definitely analogs in the show that you will see in a lot of. So, yeah, friendship and wartime. I guess we can we can forgive the really uh, sort of ham-fisted on the nose thing up top about mentioning the essay on ethics because that was just lampshading the f- uh, that was just Iris Stephen Bear lampshading the fact that this episode itself was sort of an essay about ethics but like ethical relativism with this Rom and Fredo parallel actual Western capitalist mafia is much more brutal than the Ferengi because <laughs> in The Godfather Fredo got whacked Whereas Rom got a hug and the whole ending was very touching. I agree. Well, on that note of sweetness, I think we'll uh, draw this episode of Southpaw Deep Space Nine to an end. Scott Thorough, thank you so much for uh, being our guest on this episode. Do you have anything you want to plug? Yes. First, I want to say it's an absolute pleasure um, feeling alone in some of the things I like that there's so much media but not that much media that i can relate to so just having southpaw and 
their the umbrellas of new new ideas from Southpaw with Pride Never Die or the wrestling or how the sausage is made makes me feel less alone. And I talk to a lot of people that also feel that way. So I, I came I came to Southpaw because I felt alone as a jujitsu practitioner. That's not a chud. And then I <laughs> stayed for the I stayed for the other stuff. And if you want to check out my music, Scott Thoreau, Bandcamp. Um, if you want to check my podcast, Zebras in America, it's and all the stuff. But become a Patreon of Southpaw. Shout outs to LaCora and Hi Doug. All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for helping me out with my main plug. It's patreon.com slash Southpaw Pod. S-O-U-T-H-P-A-W-P-O-D. You support all of the other uh, podcast uh, uh, shows in, in our network. For as little as $4 a month, you can become uh, a Patreon supporter and get an access to our Discord where you can see little uh, advanced uh, views of little fandom nuggets like uh, like the Free Willy uh, trailer edit. <laughs> free Tosk, everybody. Hashtag Free Tosk. That'll be our next bit of fan merch. Uh, just t-shirts that say that. So, like always, let's bring it home with... Da-na-na-na. Scott, do you know this one? Join in. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da